Good morning, and it's time for conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's kind of cool out there this morning, going to get to the mid-70s. It's going to be probably an exceptionally nice day. Going to go back into the 80s tomorrow. So no matter where you go, enjoy the day and take 94 WIP with you. And when we come back in just a bit, a thriller, a chiller, a whole lot. Also a cautionary tale. When we come back in just a bit, we're going to be talking with author James Swallow. His new book, Nomad. Nomad and a whole lot more here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, and you're on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My guest this morning, author James Swallow. Prolific guy. His new book, Nomad. Good morning, James Swallow. Hey, thank you for having me on the show, Peter. It's really great to be here. My pleasure. You are a one-man publishing industry all by yourself. Between <laughs> the fiction, the radio, the movie scripts. Why do you write in so many different genres? It's funny, you know, whenever people say to me, man, you're prolific, you write a lot. And I think, well, you know, I just, I just like to work. <laughs> Um, why do I write so much? I guess it's, it's the thing I'm good at. It's the thing I love the most. You know, it's, um, at the end of the day, writing is just writing. You know, I mean, if, if I do it for different formats, if I write a book or a short story or a script, it's still just telling stories. It's still like fiction and character and plot and narrative. But I like all of the possibilities that these different things throw up. You know, if you're writing a story for, say, radio, you need a very different toolkit to what you would use if you were writing a novel or if you were writing a screenplay. And I like doing all these different things because it, it keeps me fresh, keeps me energized and interested in the, in the work. But if you were told you could only write in one genre, which one would you pick? Oh, man, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would go a little crazy. I'll be honest with you, if I had to just pick one. I think if I just had to, if only I had one choice, I would probably stick with books. But that would, man, that would be a, that would be a hard choice to make. Do you find writing easier or hard? I've talked to some writers who say it's like opening a vein and bleeding on a page. <laughs> yeah. Some days, you know, I mean, uh, some mornings I wake up and I, and I think, oh, I, I don't want to do the work today, you know, and it's, it's, it's tough. And some days it feels like kind of chewing on a little piece of granite, you know, trying to uh, get one word in front of the other. Other days uh, everything just flows and it comes out, you know, like honey, and it's just, it's just perfect. So, um it's, I, I guess it's like any other job, right? I always say to people, you know, if, you, if you're a plumber or a baker, you know, you have to get up in the morning and you've got to plumb in that toilet, you've got to bake that cake. And, and for me, I'm a writer. I, I sit down in front of my computer and I say, okay, it's, it's 9 a.m., uh, you know, punch the clock, start writing. And, and that's kind of the way I see it. And how many hours a day do you write? I tend to start... Um, yeah, maybe six hours. I know it varies. You know, some, sometimes if I'm working on a particular project, I might end up working like late into the evening. But generally, I'm, I'm, I'm at my desk at 9 a.m. I take an hour for lunch, and I usually work until maybe 6 or 7 p.m., which is about the time my wife comes home from work. If I'm working on a, a, a project with a strong deadline, maybe I'll do a few more hours after that. But generally, I do that maybe five to six days a week. Gosh, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of words, yeah. All right. Um, tell me about your newest book, Nomad. Okay, well, Nomad is is an action thriller. 
uh, it's kind of, I guess I would say, I'm harking back to the, the books that I enjoyed reading in, in the sort of the 80s and the 90s. It's, um, it's, the, it's an airport thriller, it's a beach read, so it's fast-paced action adventure. Um, I, I'm, I'm reaching back to writers who, who I loved, people like Robert Ludlum, uh, Ian Fleming, Tom Clancy, you know, to try and uh, draw my influences from those guys. But essentially, the, the kind of back-of-the-cover description I would give is it's a fast-paced espionage thriller for the digital age set in this post-WikiLeaks, post-Edward kind of Snowden world where private military contractors and agile terror cells and corporations have as much power in the, that dark world as national intelligence agencies. And the hero is Mark Dane. He's a resourceful but untested MI6 field technician. He survives a botched strike mission, when, uh, which involves all his team getting killed. He finds himself accused of betraying his country when he uncovers the beginnings of this terrorist conspiracy, and he's forced to go on the run to clear his name. He ends up in a race against time to stop this terrorist attack to prove his innocence, and he has to rely on his skills and his wits to stay one step ahead of the people hunting him find the trailers in his own agency before he can be silenced. All right. Now, it would, it's been suggested to me that any successful thriller is going to have lots of car chases, lots of blood, and lots of sex. Do you incorporate those three? A little bit. Um, there's, there's, there's not a lot of sex in my book. <laughs> Most people say to me, you know, are there, are there uh, you know, the, the kind of the James Bondian moment where the hero beds the girl? And I said, to be honest, most of the time my heroes are too busy getting shot at or running away from things to, to have a moment to, to stop for a little bit of romance. There certainly is some car chases. There, there certainly is a, is, a, is a bit of a blood and thunder going on there as well. Um, I try to make it something that's pacey, as I say, fast-moving, so it's, uh, I've tried to create like an engaging story, that, a narrative that, that grabs the reader, that you know, drags you along. It's, it's the kind of book I think you, know, you have to strap in and, and hold on tight. A book for guys? Oh, definitely. It's a book for everybody, I think. Okay, but um, what you're describing is what might be described as a guy book. What about for the ladies? Well, you say that. It's funny. You know, the, when, the, when I was first trying to sell this book, um, the first agent I went to, um, I offered it to him, and the first thing he did is he gave it to his, uh, his assistant, this young lady, uh, and she was the first one to come back and say, you know, this is really good. This appeals to me. This is a book that I'm enjoying, not just uh, a book for, for, for men. So I think that there's, um, there's something in there for everybody. I mean, the, the thriller audience is, is, tends to be... Uh, a 50-50 split. You know, you would think this kind of thing would be kind of macho guy stuff, but there is actually a lot of female readership out there, too. And I do have uh, a strong female character in this book. Lucy Keys is an ex-Special Forces sniper, so she's in there as well. So there's a strong male character and a strong female character. I try to create something that's going to appeal to, to a broad audience that everybody's going to have some fun with. Okay. Where do you get your ideas from? As a mail-order company in Poughkeepsie. I'm kidding. Uh, it's, you know, people people say, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And it's it's a it's a it's a kind of crazy question for a writer because the the answer is everywhere. You know, you have to kind of go through the world, eyes open, ears open, listen to everything that's going on around you. So you know, watch the news, listen to conversations. You know, just absorb what is going on in the world around you. You know, sometimes I find I, I'll, I'll sit on the bus and, and I can hear people, you know, talking, uh, just having a conversation about what's going on in their life, and you, you get a little snapshot of, of something that's happening to somebody. And as a writer, you can't hear that without thinking, well, how does that narrative play out? What's that person doing? Where is that going? 
you know, just going through the world, reading history, reading modern sort of, uh, um, you know, modern history as well as sort of like, you know, ancient history, just drawing from all those things, constantly looking for for new and interesting stuff that's going on. I, I like technology a lot, so a, a lot of my books have, have, have got a strong technology component. So I'm always looking, you know, what's the new cutting-edge piece of technology? What's the new invention that's coming down the pipe? And, and then I, I look at that and I think, okay, well, if you took this idea and you kind of pushed it forward a little bit, if you kind of put your finger on the fast-forward button of this technology, how would that evolve? How could that be something interesting and compelling and a, and a spur to telling a cool story? All right, technology, though, that interests me in terms of is Nomad and Mark Dane partially, anyway, a cautionary tale? I think, I think all kind of thriller novels, certainly stuff that's, oh, I think, yeah, actually, you know, I'd say it's historically true of all thrillers. I think thriller stories will, are usually based around the concept of, of a hero fighting against a villain's plan. And, and that villain's plan is often, you know, it can be technological, it can be political, it can be sort of military, or it can be, you know, even down to kind of a small human scale. So there's always, I think there is always a kind of cautionary note through these kind of things is to, to be aware of, of the threats that exist in the real world and, and to consider them. You know, the one thing that fiction can always do really well is it kind of holds up almost like a kind of a funhouse mirror to the real world. And you can, you can reflect something in fiction. You can say, here's an idea that is a little crazy, is a little bit out there, and maybe you might look at that and think, oh, that couldn't happen in the real world, but, you know, maybe one day it might. So consider this idea and then consider how you might deal with it if you encountered it in reality. But do you think people really carry a piece of fiction that far? I think that, you know, fiction has an influence on people that it's subtle. Uh, you know, if you see something in the news, because it's the real world, because it's happening to you, it's almost like a kind of bludgeon that hits you really hard because it's direct and it's truthful and it's it's right there. But with fiction, you can kind of sneak in through the back door a little bit. You can you can bring an idea to somebody, and it doesn't feel like you're immediately kind of preaching at them or, you know, you're, you're kind of hitting them hard with this kind of sledgehammer of an idea. You can drop something subtly into people's consciousness, allow them to think about it, allow them to make their own decisions about it, and then perhaps if they encounter something like that in the real world later on, they're, they're more informed and they have a better chance to make a smart decision about how they approach it. You have a family? Well, actually, you mentioned a wife. Any children? No, no, uh, just me and the missus. What does she think about what you do for a living? Oh, she's, uh, she's very supportive. She's, uh, she's great. She's, she's kind of, I would say, she's the... She's the, the, the bearer of my compass in my life. You know, I think that being a writer, is, it's kind of a, it's a very lonely job. You know, you, you kind of strap yourself in in front of the computer and you start writing and you can get very, very focused on it. And, and you can end up kind of living in, almost in the world of your story, you know, because these characters are churning around and you have to focus to get that kind of narrative out there. So I think it's important to have a strong support structure. So, you know, so I have my wife and I have my family and I have uh, friends and, and fellow writers as well, you know, all these people around who I can kind of, you know, when I take a break, uh, are right there to kind of uh, keep me buoyed up. And I think it's uh, it's very important to have that. She certainly is a, she's a very big reader. So she tends to enjoy uh, historical fiction, which is not kind of the stuff that I write. But um, she likes thriller stuff, too, you know, and we, uh, we regularly kind of go to action movies and stuff like that uh, and watch that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, she's a, she's, it's great to have her in my corner. 
And you're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, author James Swallow. He writes a little bit of everything. His newest novel, Nomad. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. It's Conversation. I'm here with author James Swallow. Numerous things he writes. Fiction, nonfiction, scripts, video games. His newest novel, Nomad. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, James. Um, as an author, you have to paint word pictures. As a script writer, is it the same thing? It's a it's a very different set of tools that you have to bring to it. As, as a as a writer of a book, everything there has to be down on the page. You know, so you have to. If you think of it in movie terms, you know, you have to describe the set, you have to describe the characters, you have to describe the costumes, you have to describe the special effects, you have to describe everything in the location to give people, you know, a sense of what the story is. When you're writing a script, a lot of the time, most of that stuff is just kind of cut away, and so you have to consider just the dialogue, you have to consider the the, the nuance and the, the, the strength of the characters coming through that dialogue. But a lot more of it is given over to the people who are working on the project with you. You know, so the the actors will be there. People, will, the set designers, the costume makers, the directors, the, the photographers, all of these people are in in that in, uh, that project with you. So it's a much more collaborative experience, and it's very interesting. You know, the the energy you get from that is of a completely different texture from what you get from writing prose. All right, certainly in Nomad in the Mark Dane series. You tell Mark Dane what to do, or does Mark Dane tell you what to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, it's interesting. There's uh, developing his character. Uh, there, there's a bit of me in him. I mean, there's a bit of me in every one of the characters I write. You know, because that's I'm the guy who's creating them. Of course, so some of it's coming from me. Um, so I think he and I see things in a in a similar kind of way. But I get to a point where. I kind of point him at the page and I say, this is the situation. I drop him into that situation and he writes himself. So it's kind of a collaboration, I think, between this fictionalized version of this guy and me kind of push him in, pushing him in the right direction. Generally, I find when, when the story's unfolding, you know, he goes where I expect him to go. There are times when, you know, I, I get into a, a scene and I think, well, you know, actually that's not going to, I thought maybe it'll play out this way, but actually maybe it'll play out better that way. And so when that happens, I always listen to the character because I think if you force a character into a situation, it's because the story's not working right. The character has to lead that narrative, has to mesh with that plot so you get uh, a story that flows well and, and feels compelling. That's interesting because some of the other things you've written for, scripts and short stories in particular, you've written for Star Trek, you've written for Doctor Who, you've written for Stargate, and you've written for 24. Someone else created the characters. So what do you That's do right, with them? Yeah. What else do you do with them? Well, it's an interesting situation to be in, you know, because a lot of times when, when you come into that kind of circumstances, a lot of the work has already been done. You know, talk about 24 is a good example. Jack Bauer as a character has been on the TV show. You know, we've had seasons and seasons of this guy being on TV. So everybody has an understanding of who that character is, how he performs, what he's going to do in a given situation. How do you bring something new and interesting to that? When I was working on the 24 franchise, I wrote a novel. And one of the great things about doing a novel that makes it different from TV is that you can get inside a character's head. On a television show, it's difficult to give the kind of the internal viewpoint, you know, to see the thought process 
of a character. But in a novel, you can get right in there and you can understand, you know, how the cogs are turning inside somebody's brain, you know, what, what uh, motivates them, what, what drives them through the story. And so for me, that was the interesting thing about it. It gave me the opportunity to take this character, this well-known, well-loved television character, and kind of open him out a little bit and give the readers a chance to see, you know, what's going on inside his head. But with the other two series I mentioned, Star Trek and Doctor Who, they are such iconic series and characters that if you write well, you've got a bestseller, and if you write poorly, it ends up on the dollar table in the bookstore. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Those shows, I mean, those are, those are both um, shows that have given me a lot of love personally yeah, over the years. They're, they're things that I've enjoyed so much. You know, it's, I've been a fan of them you know, since I was a kid. So having the opportunity to, to add a little bit to that um, was a great honor for me. It's almost like if you imagine those shows are a kind of uh, a great crazy quilt, right? And everybody, you know, sews a little extra piece on every time they tell their own story with those characters. And giving the opportunity to add a little piece to that world um, was really terrific. But what you need to do to do that right is you have to understand that world. You have to understand those characters. You have to know that in a given circumstance, you know, Captain Kirk is going to behave in this kind of way or Doctor Who is going to behave in this kind of way. And you have to be true to that. You have to be authentic. You have to understand the, the texture of that world and stick to it. Because, as you say, you know, if you don't do that, the readership will say, well, this isn't correct. This isn't how these characters behave. And it's like, the, it's like a song hitting the wrong note. Speaking of Doctor Who, and it's a side trip off to our main topic here, what do you think of the new female Doctor Who? Well, it's going to be very interesting because tonight is the, uh, the first episode is broadcasting on British TV, so I'm looking forward to seeing how, how things shake out. You know, it's a very interesting show because every time there's a new Doctor Who comes in, it's like the entire show goes through this kind of reset period, and we have an opportunity to see how a new actor takes on that role, the iconic role of this character, this kind of wanderer through time and space who's, you know, looking for adventure and, and, and drawing other human characters along with him, is, is, a, is a fascinating idea. And I think it's going to be really cool to see how um, Jodie comes in and, and shakes things up for this new season. All right. Then there's the video games, a whole other business, I would imagine. Yeah, games are, games are a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a child of kind of the 1980s, so I grew up... My, my, my lifestyle is, gr is growing up with video games. It's games of, I look back at the kind of thing I played when I was a kid, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's the equivalent of kind of stone knives and bear skins, you know, to the kind of technology of video games that are around right now. And it's fascinating to be involved in that as a writer because it's such a unique way to tell story. You know, if you watch a movie or you read a book, uh, you know, you go, you, you go to the theater or however you consume story, you, you are a passenger kind of in the story. You know, no matter how closely you might identify with, say, the lead character in a movie, you're always going to be somebody who is following that character. You're always going to be a passive observer of what they're doing. But you play a video game, you are that lead character. You have the opportunity to change the directions that that character takes. You know, you can... You can take the narrative off in, in all sorts of interesting directions, and you get to influence their, their choices. And I think that is fascinating as a writer to be involved in that because you create this branching narrative where all of these different choices have to be played out and all these different opportunities can, can lead to some very sort of interesting dramatic elements. And for me, that's, it's a fantastic challenge, and it's a lot of fun and a lot of work, of course. 
but probably like the other genres you write in, video games demand a certain amount of violence, don't they? Well, it depends on the the, the kind of game you're writing. I mean, uh, a, a lot of the popular games are, are you know, are, do have a heavy sort of like conflict element in them. But there are also plenty of games that are, have a kind of softer, sort of gentler kind of view to them. So there isn't, you know, it's it's not kind of any one thing or the other. Certainly, conflict is always good. I think for, for characters because it gives you know, it gives you an impetus. It gives your, your characters a reason to react to something. It gives them a reason to have velocity and momentum through the story. But that conflict doesn't necessarily have to kind of come from the barrel of a gun. Okay. Uh, a lot of that conflict, though, between the good and the bad, can we also define it as between the good and the evil? I think that's uh, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I think that um, you know I try to write stories about um, characters who have a strong moral core, who have you know uh, an understanding of the the nature of the the, the 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 world we live in is not kind of black and white. That it is shades of grey, and that uh, you know to to navigate your way through this, you have to you have to have a set. I think like a code is the best way to put it. You know, you need to have a, a code of ethics, a code of behaviour to try and be the best person you can. And if, you're, if you come across people who are uh, you know, antithetical to that, you have to decide you know, where, where you are going to take a stand. And that, to me, is the, that's the essential hero versus villain narrative right there. You believe in evil? I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nebulous question, isn't it? Is, does, does evil exist as like a thing? Or can people be evil? Are people born evil? I think... I think there is evil in the world. I think there are, there are evil deeds that are done by people sometimes who think that they're doing the right thing, who, you know, who, uh, who have uh, an understanding that, that they, can, they, are, they have permission to do evil because of the, the way they've been brought up. I think that we, as moral humans, we have to stand against that kind of stuff. We have to you know, try and find a path towards the best in ourselves and encourage others to follow that path. If you could only do one of the genres you write in, well, could you, we talked about, you know, novels are the ones you wanted. But uh, let's, let's include the scripts, let's include the video games, all of it. Which one do you like the most? Oh, see, that's a tough question because that's like saying, you know, which one of your children do you love the most? <laughs> you know, I, I, have, I have so much enjoyment from all of these things. It would be really difficult for me to pick, pick just one. I, I've, I've built myself a career where I can do all of these different things, so I think I wouldn't want to answer that question. Okay. Which is more important to you then, a good review or a good royalty check? <laughs> no, both are nice. I mean, um, gee, obviously, you know, if, if I look at it from a kind of cold-hearted mercenary point of view, it's nice to get a nice check because, you know, I have a mortgage to pay and I have food bills like everybody else, you know, and I, uh, I need to keep the wolf from the door. But having said that, one of the things that the things that stay with me more than anything is when somebody says to me, you know, this book gave me gave me something. I had an emotional connection to this book. So if someone says, you know, I read this book and I had I had a great time and it was fun and exciting, that's that's really lovely to hear. Or if somebody comes to me and says, you know, this this book spoke to me on some levels, it helped me helped me through a difficult situation or it gave me, you know, gave me a moment's respite from, from maybe being in a tough circumstance. That is so rewarding, and that just, that's, that's better than any kind of gold, you know? 
And you're listening to 94WIP. We'll be right back in just a bit with author James Swallow. The WIP time, 637. And we're back on conversation with author James Swallow. His new book in the Mark Dane series. James, um, what's with these Sundowner series, these, these punk, steampunk novels? Oh, the Sundowners books. That was... That was probably that was the first thing I ever did. That's we're we're, we're turning the clock back now to to the early two thousands, two thousand and one, I think. Um, very early on in my career, um, I was doing some work with a publisher, and they were interested in doing what we call the young adult book series, and they wanted me to pitch some uh, an action adventure story for for teens. Uh, and I and I asked myself back in the back in the day when I was that age, what was the thing that I thought was very very cool and. And I went back to the westerns that I would watch every Sunday, uh, Sunday dinner. This is a a tradition here in the U.K., is uh, if you turn on the TV around about lunchtime on a Sunday, on the BBC or BBC Two, there would always be a classic western. And it was a thing where, you know, my mum would bring dinner in, we would sit there and we would watch a western over over dinner, over over lunch, I should say. So um, that was something that I always enjoyed. I always loved the kind of the romance and the, 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 the concept of, of, of the Wild West as, a, as, as an idea. Uh, and I loved the, um, at the same time, movies I loved, like uh, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. I loved those, those sort of pulp action sort of type stories. So when the time came to, to write something for this series, I thought, well, let's marry two of these ideas together. So that was where Sundowners came from, was this Wild West-based series, but with a kind of steampunk, kind of Jules Verne technical element in there as well, you know, enjoying my love of sci-fi, putting a little bit of that in there. Uh, and that was Sundowners, and, and that was pretty much my, my first series of books. That was four novels, uh, and I had a lot of fun doing those. Uh, I keep thinking that I'd like to get that back out in the market one of these days. Okay. Um, what did you do, though, before you started writing? I, I kind of, you know, I've always been writing, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, if you, if you mean, like, what was my, my day job before yes. I quit and, and became a full-time writer, I used to working in an industrial laboratory, so... Uh, I was doing uh, technical testing and using, you know, huge um, machines to sort of break things and pull stuff apart and working in chemical laboratories, uh, and that was my day job. And then I would go home in the evenings uh, and I would write short stories and, and articles for magazines and stay up way too late working on my computer and then kind of fall asleep at work the next day. I'm sure the chemical laboratories weren't too happy with the falling asleep part. <laughs> yeah, I made sure. Uh, yeah, fortunately, I, I didn't blow anything up or, or set fire to anything. Good. This is good. Um, but probably they're proud. They knew you went. Oh, well, that would be nice to think so. I mean, it would be, it would be nice to know that some of, uh, some of the guys I work with, I hope if they're, if they're out there and they're reading my books and they're enjoying them, that would be really nice to know. Ever desire, though, James, to write the great novel as opposed to these, which are great novels but not the same thing as Hemingway? Or you know, I can give you a straight answer to that. The answer to that is no. You know, a lot of people talk about great literature and, you know, the idea of the great novel, you know, that, that highfalutin concept. And to me, I think, I don't think that's attainable. I don't think that's a thing that, that can be done. It's, you know, every generation will have its idea of what the great novel is. And I, I wouldn't be so pretentious as to think that I could do something like that. The books that I write... I write action and adventure and pulp. That's, that's exactly what I do. I write books that are designed to kind of take you away from the mundane world, to, to give you an exciting, thrilling adventure, and then, and then bring you back home again. 
So for me, the idea of writing something that is, you know, uh, a, a, a navel-gazing kind of thing, you know, looking at the human condition, uh, that to me just it seems beyond my experience. It's also been suggested to me, though, you're in London. That's where we're talking to you this morning. It's where you live. Um, That's right. The British sensibility, which you grew up with, is different than the American sensibility, is different than the French sensibility, whatever. How do you juggle the sensibilities that, of your audience as you write? That's very true. Um, I mean, early on in my career, I had some experience working in American television. So I had an understanding, I guess, of the, of the American style of storytelling. Uh, and bringing that sort of technical knowledge and marrying that with, as you say, my, my kind of British sense of narrative uh, and, and, and the, the, the British reading that I've done of British, read, British writers and British fiction, I think I've tried to merge those two together. I often will have British readers say to me, you know, you write in a very American style, that you have a very kind of visual, propulsive, movie-style writing, and that's kind of associated with, with American audiences. But then I'll have uh, American readers say to me, oh, you know, what you do feels very, very British. So I guess I try to, I kind of str- try to straddle the two lines to hopefully create something that both audiences will find compelling and fun. And when you write, do you ever think beyond the printed page that you'd like to see it on the bigger little screen? You know, that would be cool. Um, I've had a couple of conversations with some production companies. Right now I'm talking to a couple of TV companies about the idea of, of possibly doing a Mark Dane TV series. And that would be amazing, but it would be very different. You know, the, the needs of television are very, very much more visual, and, and there's, there's a whole lot of, of different stuff that you have to kind of program in there if you want to create something that works on television as you do for, for writing a book. So right now, my focus is, is writing the novels. Is that, to me, is where most of my energy is going. Um, if we do a TV project, that would be fantastic, but I think it would have a very different tone. It would almost be, I guess, like a companion piece to the novels rather than like a strict adaptation. Now, something else, though, you do, and it happens a lot in Great Britain as opposed to here in America, and that's radio drama. Uh, radio drama is, is one of my favorite things, I have to say. Um, you know, it's, it is strange that I think, you know, America used to have a fantastic tradition of radio drama. You know, you go back, go back into the dim and distant past and, you know, it's stuff like The Shadow, you know, that's to me, is, that's classic radio drama right there. And it used to be such a big thing uh, on American radio. And then at some point you guys kind of moved to just doing talk radio and music and, and it seemed like radio drama in America just kind of faded away. But here in the UK, that's never gone. We've, we've had radio drama for, for a very long time, and it has uh, a degree of respect in this country. If you speak to British actors, they'll talk about radio drama in the same way they would talk about, you know, the legitimate theater as, you know, something that is, is thought of very, very highly. And it is interesting to me because often, you know, I've spoken to American uh, readers and I talk about audio drama and they say, oh, you mean like a talking book? And I say, no, no, absolutely not. It's not just somebody reading out a text to you. This is actors and music and sound effects and it's a whole radio production for, for, you know, for you to sit there and enjoy. And it's very interesting now that we seem to be 
at the cusp of a, of, a, of a resurgence in radio drama because now we have a lot of people listening to audio through podcasting, not just through broadcast radio, but they're, they're downloading and listening to these kind of things. And it seems like, I think in the U.S., there suddenly seems to be a new interest in the idea of what people are calling a scripted podcast, which to me is just a radio drama. You know, but instead of getting it broadcast over the airwaves, you're getting it sent to you over the Internet. And I guess for a final question, um, James Swallow, of all the characters you've written for, if you could change places with one of them, who would you want to be? Wow, that's a tough question to answer. You know, I think if I could pick a fictional character, I wouldn't mind maybe serving a couple of tours on the on the Starship Enterprise. You know, that that would be uh, that would be a lot of fun just to sort of boldly go out there and see some strange new worlds and, and have some of the adventures that, that those characters have had. Also, it's kind of dangerous, though. Yeah, a little bit. You know, I think it would, as long as I wasn't wearing a red shirt, though, I think I'd probably be fine. <laughs> What's next? What's next for me? Right. Yes. Um, so right now, I'm, I'm working on the fourth book in the Mark Dane series. Uh, and then when that is done, I think I'm going to take a well-earned vacation. Good for you and Mrs. Dane and Mrs. Swallow. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, your female character in Mark Dane, any resemblance between her and Mrs. Day and Mrs. Swallow? Oh well, I think she knows. <laughs> I, we, I, I'll have to tell her that she'll find that very amusing. Uh, yeah, I guess there is a little bit. Um, the the female character in the book, Lucy Keys, she's uh, she's no nonsense and and she's smart as a whip. And I think definitely. Uh, that, that sums up my missus, definitely. And I'd like to say thank you to James Swallow. James, do you have a website? Yeah, you guys can uh, find me at, at jameswallow.blogspot.co.uk or you can look for me on Twitter, at jmswallow. And I must tell you, James, before we go, I was impressed because not everybody I interview ends up with their own Wikipedia page, and you've got one. Yes, that's true. Yes, I, I want to say thank you to all the people who put that together for me. And my guest this morning has been James Swallow, his new book from um, the Mark Dane series, Nomad. Thank you, James Swallow. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And it's been Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good talk in just a bit. Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And a cool WIP Sunday morning it happens to be. So no matter where you go, maybe take a sweater or a sweatshirt and take WIP with you. Always good conversation. And this morning our conversation is about union strikes and a whole lot more as we welcome Eric Loomis. Eric is author of the new book, A History of America in Ten Strikes. When I was a kid, Eric... There used to be a commercial, look for the union label, and I won't drive people away with singing further. You remember that commercial? I'm a little bit, a little bit young for that. All right. It used to be very popular. It's not there anymore. What's happened to our perception about unions? Well, um, you know, I, I think a lot of things have happened. Uh, you know, the economy's uh, changed so dramatically since the 1960s. Uh, so many of those union jobs have disappeared. So, you know, in terms of your your label, um, you know, if there's no nothing uh, made in America anymore, you're not going to have a made a, you know, union-made commercial. Um, and uh, so a lot of our unions today are in 
government workers and uh, uh, you know construction trades and those sorts of things. But uh, you know those manufacturing unions are pretty much gone. And uh, also, you know, there's there's been a, a series of you know really 50 years now of uh, right-wing propaganda, um, you know, trying to undermine unions and uh, attack unions in the political realm and uh, in the legal realm, and they've been very very successful in doing that. And so today, the union movement is the weakest it's been since the 1920s. Good thing or bad thing, in your opinion? Oh, I think, well, I mean, I think it's a terrible thing because, um, you know, there's only one uh, institution in all of American history that has brought working voices into politics as, you know, representing their economic interests, and that's labor unions. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's not coincidental that with the rise of labor unions in the 1930s, uh, you began to see the things that we expect today from the workplace, you, you know, the eight-hour day the minimum wage, overtime pay, these sorts of the weekend, these sorts of basic things. And uh, now that unions have been largely uh, erased from much of our work, uh, it's not surprising that once again today we have the highest income inequality since we've seen uh, that we've seen since the 1920s. Uh, and so in many ways we're now replicating the uh, economy and social conditions of 100 years ago which were not very good for most Americans. All right. 10 strikes in American history. How did you choose the 10? Well, you know, I, I sat back and I thought, well, you know, whatever, you know, workers are always going to struggle for whatever they believe in. It might be in a union, it might be outside of a union, but, you know, everyday people, you and I, if we see an injustice in our own lives, we're going to try to fix it, right, whatever that might be. And, uh, you know, a lot of those injustices are, are at work. And so I tried to go back through American history and think about, you know, what are really, what are really critical turning points and what are some actions that really demonstrate why unions succeed and maybe why they don't succeed in, in, in our lives. And so, and so I, I, I picked strikes that ranged from like, you know, big classic in 1930s strikes, like the Flint sit-down strike, that's this iconic moment in all of American history, to some of uh, labor's greatest successes, to some of labor's greatest failures, such as when Reagan busted the air traffic controller strike in 1981. Um, even thought about um, things that were not usually considered uh, strikes, um, such as when slaves uh, basically helped win the Civil War for the North by simply walking off the, the plantations, going away from their masters, and instead uh, fleeing to Union lines, which dramatically undermined the Confederacy. So, you know, I really tried to think about big turning points in American history and also, also uh, you know, what tells us something about today that we need to know. All right. Well, then let's get out of time machine and wander through history. You, okay. start, you start with the Lowell Mill girl strike in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. 1830 to 1840. What was going on? Well, you know, you had, it was really the, the, the first big factories in America. Um, you know, they are uh, developed uh, after 1800 to uh, basically to create uh, the apparel trade, the textile trade, clothing and things like this out of cotton. And, uh, you know, they hire mostly uh, young women and children. Um, which is important because in many ways those are the first industrial workers. So often when we think about unions, the kind of this, this image of the white male working in a factory with a hard hat comes to our mind, and, and there's a reason for that, of course. But women have always been a very important part of the workforce and too often don't get enough attention. And so, you know, they hired these women, and they mostly came off of small farms in, you know, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and places like this. And they're used to working hard, but the conditions in the factories are really pretty rough. They're working 14-hour days. It's incredibly hot. It's dangerous in there. 
And finally, they begin to say, you know what, we, we need to stand up for ourselves. And uh, so they, be, they go to the state of Massachusetts. They issue a series of demands saying, you know, you need to investigate these conditions. You need to make things better. And uh, they go on strike to, to, to promote that. Um, what They don't really win that strike. Uh, what ends up happening is that uh, uh, they, they mostly get uh, replaced by Irish workers who are coming over, you know, escaping the potato famine and this sort of thing. And, and they're, these Irish workers are desperate and will work in the worst possible conditions. So they don't really win this. But what it, what it demonstrates, A, that women were always central to American work, and we need to pay attention to that today, and, and, and that, B, this apparel industry, this clothing industry, has always been one of the most exploited in, in all of the world and continues to be today. So today, our clothing, of course, is not made in the United States. It's made in Bangladesh. It's made in India, places like this, where the same conditions uh, are, exist that really were – that's what these workers were fighting against in the 1830s and 1840s. So really, then the Lowell Mill strike achieved nothing. Uh, basically, but that's the way. But that's the case for for many many strikes, right? I mean, a lot of strikes are lost. So yeah, you know, they they don't really win anything, but uh, but I, I, it's still very important. Okay, then there was a slave strike of the Civil War in the Confederacy. Tell me about that. Yeah. So. You know, we don't usually think of slavery as as labor. Like again, when we think of unions or we think of strikes, we're certainly not thinking of slaves. But we have to remember, slavery existed as a labor system. That's the point of it, right? I mean, you know, people in Europeans when they come to the Americas, in most of the Americas, going all the way down into South America, up into you know New York, uh, they wanted people of color to work for them for free. That is the idea. Um, and uh, first, it's Native Americans, but for a variety of reasons, that doesn't really work. Uh, largely because Native American populations decline, so they start getting Africans. And so the point of it is a labor system. And it's that labor system that is the backbone of why the South secedes during the Civil War and tries to become its own nation, because it wants to protect this slave labor system. Um, and, uh, and, and, but what happens is uh, as soon as the Civil War starts, slaves, when, when the Union lines come, when the Union army comes to a various place and manages to take some land over, slaves start fleeing to those lines. And very quickly, uh, northern generals, particularly a guy named Benjamin Butler, who was not, it should be said, you know, particularly anti-slavery. He, he, he actually didn't care about slavery, but he's there to win the war, and he, he, uh, uh, he accepts these slaves. He, they, they, they come to his lines, and he says, well, okay, I mean I guess you know, it's okay to confiscate property during war according to the south of your property, so we're going to take you. And uh, you can work for us instead. And uh, this begins a process by which first dozens and then hundreds and then slaves by the thousands walk off the job, walk off their, their plantations, and it undermines the, you know, the, the ability to grow cotton and undermines the ability to grow food for Confederate troops. And this action, this, this spontaneous strike by slaves forces Lincoln to – takes slavery seriously, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, and it severely undermines the ability of the South to continue that war. And so in many ways, this is the most successful and most important strike in all of American history, yet we don't usually think of it in those terms. And these slaves, though, walking off the plantation and running for the North, risked their lives, didn't they? They sure did. I mean, many of them lost their lives. You know, if they got caught, they were quite likely to be killed. So, and... And, you know, yes, absolutely. And then, and then many of them, once they do reach Northern Lines, they volunteer for the Union Army, right, because they want to fight. They want to – I mean, it's because it's about freeing their families, right, and about freeing their friends and, 
and and you know and everybody else. Um, so this is yeah, they many many uh, fought and died for their freedom, um, but it's not just freedom. It's also the freedom to get paid. It's the freedom to you know be able to work where you want to. I mean, this was part of their freedom. Then there was the eight-hour day strike in Chicago, eighteen eighty-six. Yeah, so, yeah, in the eighteen eighties, you know, a lot of Americans are trying to figure out. You know, this system of capitalism is supposed to work for us, right? And and many of them, you know, believed it would. They they, they strongly believed the system of capitalism is developing in America that it would be, you know, that the, that if you worked hard and you you know didn't uh, you know you were responsible that that you would get your fair share of the of the of the money. You know, you would be an independent person. Maybe you'd be a little farmer. Maybe you'd work for yourself in the city. You know, you'd have your little shop or something like that. But it doesn't work out that way. Um, that uh, by the uh, by the 1880s, a lot of Americans are, uh, are realizing that the system does not work for them. And instead, uh, so they, they start trying to figure out what to do about it. How do we fix this system? So they come up with a lot of ideas. Some of them are bad, like let's get rid of all the Chinese workers. So they, they, they push for the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 uh, to get rid of that competition. So sometimes it could be racism um, that uh, is the way they respond. But Sometimes they start organizing into more productive things. And in 1886, a huge movement spreads across the country for the eight-hour day. This is, becomes the dream of the American worker. And they go on strike, and they win some big gains. And But what happens is that in Chicago that, that May of 1886, uh, in a protest that's somewhat unconnected to uh, – somewhat unconnected to the eight-hour day strike, uh, there is uh, some anarchists who throw a bomb, and they kill some policemen. And that moment, this Haymarket uh, riot, as it's called, uh, really undermines public support for the eight-hour day. And so the strikes mostly don't succeed in 1886, but they bring the eight-hour day into the American consciousness, making it central to how Americans think work should be. And we still do today, even though so many of us don't work eight-hour days. We work less, or sometimes we have to combine jobs and work more. Um, it's still the ideal. This is this is the what means a good job in America is the eight-hour day. So, so you know, in in that way, it's very very important. And then there was the anthracite strike in Pennsylvania. Is this the one that had the Molly Maguires? No, that's before. So the Molly Maguires were in the 1870s. But it's connected to them in the sense that um, it's the same workers. It's basically, in many ways, the children of the Molly Maguires. So, you know, going back to, uh, going back to uh, um, you know, around that time, you had the coal industry developing, and it becomes a huge part of American industry. You know, it feeds the railroads. It also, you know, people burn it in their homes. It feeds the steel mills. So it's really fueling the rise of America. And, but, the, but the conditions in the coal mines, and this is not too far from, from where you're at in Philly. This is up around Scranton, particularly in, in that area. Um, you know, the conditions are just brutal. I mean, they're, they're just terrible. And workers do go on strike to try to fix these conditions and, and you know, be able to live uh, and these sorts of things because they're dying in, in some cases by the hundreds and coal mine disasters and things like this. So they go on strike repeatedly. But what happens in 1902 is this is really important if you want to see when does the labor movement succeed? It succeeds really when the government is neutral. If the government and the companies combine and they both want to crush the union, it's very hard for American workers to win. That was true then, and it's true today. In 1902, though, we had a different president. We had Theodore Roosevelt as president. And Roosevelt was concerned that American workers were being treated unfairly. He really wasn't pro-union. 
but he saw a situation where these coal miners were treated so badly that when they go on strike in 1902, he intervenes, but as instead of like what happened in the famous Pullman strike in 1894, where, the, where President Cleveland sent the military in to crush the strike, instead he refuses to do that and rather forces mediation between the coal operators, which are backed by the railroads, like by J.P. Morgan, and the workers. And in doing so, he allows the workers to get a fair shake. They don't win everything, but they win some things. And it's a big victory for the labor movement. But most importantly for us, it demonstrates that if the unions are going to succeed, the government has to at least be neutral. And that's something we really need to learn for today. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We're taking a stroll through labor history this morning with my guest, author Eric Loomis. His new book, Ten Strikes in America, A History That Changed Us All. And we'll be back after these messages. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking labor, strikes, and a whole lot more with historian author Eric Loomis. His new book, about labor strikes and the changed America. All right, Eric, moving on, let's talk about the next one. The next one being the next one being the bread and roses strike. Right. So in nineteen so that's that's nineteen twelve. We're actually we're almost right back where the Lowell Mill girls were only twenty miles away and it's pretty much the same industry. Um, and but the conditions have gotten so bad and now by nineteen twelve you have, you have so many immigrants who have come to the United States, Italians, right, the Poles, Lithuanians, the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is the classic period of American immigration, and, you know, we have these tremendously diverse uh, cities, but people are living in just the worst possible conditions. I mean, this is brutal, hard work, and the poverty is so bad. And, you know, people are crammed into these tiny houses and, and split up, you know, 15 people in what would today maybe be, you know, an apartment that three people would live in, this, this kind of thing. And so they all of a sudden, these workers, they go on strike, they, you know, which, which was common, right, again. But what's happened in the meantime is that in 1905, a new kind of labor organization develops. That's called the Industrial Workers of the World. And these were, these were radicals, right? These were people who wanted to overthrow capitalism, who thought – capitalism was evil and wrong. And so they begin to show up. And, you know, the everyday workers in Lawrence, they may not care about the anti-capitalist stuff, but they do care about an organization that's going to help fight for them. And they were really brilliant at propaganda. So these, these IWW people, they were so good at propaganda, and they would get the message out. They had these beautiful images, and they begin to get attention for these workers. And what they do uh, is that they start sending, as the strike goes on, people are hungry and cold. It's the winter, and you know it's outside of Boston, so you can imagine how cold it would be. That they begin to send the children of these striking workers, they send them to New York, and then they send them to Philadelphia. And then they send them to Boston and to Vermont. And these children, you know, basically placing them in homes for the duration of the strike spreads the message. They have parades for them. And this begins to put national attention on this incident. And so now the media is paying attention. And so the, the Lawrence uh, employers do a couple of things. First, they, they actually they kill a woman and then try to frame the strike leaders for it, which was really a horrible thing to do. Um, and so they throw some of the strike leaders in prison. And then 
this was what really makes the strike famous is that as women and children are waiting at the train station to put the children on trains to send them into the city, the police come and they start beating the mothers and beating the children with their billy clubs. And this is, becomes a national disgrace. There are congressional hearings involved, uh, and uh, they are, uh, they, you know, the wife of the president, William Howard Taft, shows up. Uh, to support these women, and it becomes a huge victory at a time when the poorest American workers don't have a lot of victories. And so, this so-called bread and roses strike uh, is 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 a moment of a tremendous victory for the poorest workers in America, and doesn't last very long. The employers have, you know, eventually strike back and 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 destroy that union. But at the moment, it's just this fantastic, amazing moment in the in the history of American work, and one that really should be cherished today. That's amazing to think that Mrs. Taft showed up. That would be like Melania showing up for a strike today. Yeah, basically, that's what it would be. That would, it would be the president, yeah, the president's wife saying, you know what, this is wrong, and we, this is unacceptable in our country. So, yeah, that was, that was a pretty, pretty fantastic moment. And, and William Howard Taft, it should be said, uh, was no liberal, right? I mean, he was a very conservative uh, president, and his wife was very conservative. So they, they were not pro-union by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-mm-mm. All right, Oakland general strike. Yeah, so 1946, um, uh, you have it's World War II by this time, right? And uh, you know, in the 1930s, unions had, uh, had 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 these enormous successes, and now by the 30s, that's when you really begin to see uh, unions begin to win. And uh, they win uh, because Franklin Delano Roosevelt is president. The Great Depression, and and you know. So they start developing what becomes the middle class. But the employers, the employers don't like this. Employers hate the New Deal. They hate this, all the gains that workers have made, Social Security, the eight-hour day, the minimum wage. They don't like any of this. But workers have gotten much, much stronger. And in World War II, that only becomes more so because in order to stop, in order to stop uh, strikes from you know, getting in the way of the war effort, um, the Roosevelt administration basically gives unions a whole lot of guarantees. Um, and so this really stabilizes that movement, and, and the lives of workers would be rising, right? Except that the government also limits the amount of money they can make to control wages during the war. Okay, so so they want economic stability, but workers are getting very impatient. They've won some rights, but they they don't have any money. Could you imagine, you know, going back to the Great Depression and World War II? Workers have not had any really money to spend in 15 years. So imagine they're not really buying anything for 15 years, right? It's, it's you know no consumer goods, this sort of thing, right? And so so. So they really want to buy some stuff. So it's 1946. The war is over, and they're ready. They're ready to buy. But the work, but the employers, they're not going to pay them any money. They, they still don't want to pay them anything. And so in Oakland, a bunch of department store workers, again, again, women, they start a little strike to just just to make more money, right? Just to get a decent wage. And this spreads like wildfire across the city of Oakland. And so the unions in Oakland, and here we're not talking about radical unions here. We're not talking about unions led by communists, anything like that. We're talking about your regular unions. They decide we're all going to go on strike and shut down the city of Oakland so that we can all get better wages. And they do. For three days, Oakland shuts down. It's, an, it's incredible. It's nonviolent. Uh, they keep, you know, certain industries stay open. So, you know, hospitals and things like this, they're not going to strike against them. Uh, they, they, open, uh, they open up, you know, stores. They, they allow a bar to stay open if they put the jukebox on the street for everybody to listen to. And it becomes this giant party on the streets. And, it, and so for three days, they shut everything down. It's an amazing moment. And it eventually does get – it gets 
somewhat undermined. Some of the unions don't like it. Um, uh, the head of the Teamsters, a guy named Dave Beck, finally says this is going too far, so this kind of ends it. But it's a moment that shows how much workers, how much power workers now have in, in society. They can shut down a city. And this is kind of also a moment where they begin to get those kind of wages that they want, right? So that by the 1950s into the 1960s, this is this great moment of working class success in America. This is this moment where now people are spending money, they're buying cars, they're going on vacation, right? Because now because they're union contracts, they have things like vacation time, right? And retirement pay and, and health benefits and all of these sorts of things that workers never had before. So they have disposable income. And so this is a moment where when we think of, of the, the era of working class success, this is when it happened. And this, so I use this open general strike at this moment to explain why that happened and how great it really was for, for American workers. And I confess to making a whoops. I almost left out the Flint sit-down strike. Oh, that's okay. We can go back. So, yeah, so, so that Oakland general strike is, is built on this Flint sit-down strike in, in 1937. Um, and so, you know, and I think there's a really important story here for us. And it goes a little bit back to, to uh, the anthracite strike as well. So, you know, in, in, in the 1930s, what happens, right, you have the Great Depression. And, and, you know, I mean, the conditions are so bad in America. Can you imagine 25% unemployment? That's so bad. And then another 25% of workers were not working 40 hours a week. They were working maybe 20 hours a week. They were underemployed. So you have half the workers in America struggling with deep poverty. It's such a terrible time. And so, you know, what, what happens is that new union movements form. And this is when you have the formation of what's called CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And so this is a new kind of unionism that's going to organize all of the factories, right? So this is where you have seen the rise of the United Auto Workers, the United Steel Workers, the big unions that uh, really dominate post-war America. And so, you know, the United Auto Workers is this 1937, it's this tiny little union, and they, they, they need to have a win. They need to organize successfully. And so they, they choose General Motors. And some of their workers decide uh, that what they're going to do in Flint, Michigan, is they're just going to sit down on the job. They're not going to leave the, the workplace. They're going to sit down on the job, and they're going to stay there until they win. And they do. It's, it becomes the greatest victory in all of the history of American labor. Um, and uh, what happens, though, this is important, again, it shows the government, the role of the government. It happens because workers around the country had elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt president, because General Motors goes to the president, right, and he says, and they say, you know, we need you to destroy this strike. We need you to get the military in there to destroy it, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt says, no, I'm not going to do that. And they also go to the governor of Michigan, right, and a man named Frank Murphy. And Frank Murphy had been elected by these workers the year before to as their their governor. And Frank Murphy says, no, I'm not going to send in the National Guard to kick these workers out. I'm not going to do that. That would be wrong. But in the past, that's exactly what a governor would have done. That's what General Motors expected would happen because it had happened over and over again that when a company went to the state and said, we need military support – to get rid of this strike, governors around the country would give that support. And so the state and companies had combined to crush those workers' movements. And now what this – because workers had elected the right politicians, now they say, no, we're going to be neutral in this. And finally, General Motors gives up, and they sign a contract, and the United Auto Workers is born – it succeeds, and it becomes the most important single union in the country from the 1940s until the 1970s. Lordstown. Yeah. 
So this sticks us with the United Auto Workers still. So imagine it's 30 years later, right? Uh, 35 years later in this case. And, you know, you were 20 years old in 1937, right? And you, you know, you were in, involved in that Flint strike. Now it's 35 years later. You're 55 years old. You're about to retire because you can retire at 55 because you've got your great contract, right? But, you know, you've worked like a dog for those 35 years. Because this work on a big assembly line in a factory, it's not very much fun. You're doing the same thing over and over and over again for 35 years. It's not very satisfying, but you're satisfied because you grew up poor, right? You had nothing. It's the Great Depression, and now you have a job. And now that job gets you benefits and your vacation and all this other stuff I just talked about, right? So you're pretty happy. Your life has been successful. But now imagine that you're the, the child of that 20-year-old, right? And you're now 25 years old. It's 1972. And you have just come back from the Vietnam War. You served in Vietnam, okay? And so you were in Vietnam for, you know, a year or two, and you saw some bad stuff, and you were involved in some things. And, you know, there's a culture of, in America at that time of protest, right? You had civil rights, women's rights, all of these the environmental movements, all of these movements that have popped up. And so you come back from Vietnam, and, you know, you don't have a college education. You're just a regular guy, and you go into the factory just like Dad did. But now it's 1972. Do you want to work for 35 years doing the same job over and over and over again? And a lot of these guys, they don't. They're, un they're not satisfied. They like the wages. They like the benefits. But the job stinks. And so, you know, you have the United Auto Workers by this time, and it's the same leadership, right? Now they're old, and they don't understand what's going on. They're like, we got you this great job. Look at all this money you make. Why are you, why are you upset about this? But these workers, these young kids at this little, uh, this little, this factory in Lordstown, Ohio, which is outside of Youngstown, the average age in that factory is something like 26 years old. They're all kids. And so they're like, we've had enough. So they go on strike in 1972 against General Motors, but also against their own union. And the United Auto Workers is like, we don't know what to do with these people. These, these kids are crazy. And so what they do is the UAW and the, uh, the auto workers basically work together to undermine this, this strike because what these strikers really want is just a better life. And they said, well, there's no way that's going to happen on, on this, you know, you're still going to be working this job. And so, yeah, they give them some more wages and things like this. But it shows this moment of how protest changes American work, how this moment – of incredible protests throughout America also affects our workplace and it affects our unions, but it is only a moment because what also what happens in 1973, the next year, is that you have the end of the giant booming post-war economy, and so now you begin to have unemployment, inflation, oil crisis, all kinds of economic problems. Plus, the jobs start going away. So General Motors is going to start shutting plants down and sending them overseas. Steel mills start closing. And so now, very quickly, that, that moment where you could strike because you were just unhappy in 1972, you can't really do that anymore because now you're scared that you're not even going to have a job. And so you have this moment of protest, but it gets undermined because our whole economy is changing, and it begins to create the economy we have today, which is not one where we as workers are very stable. We, you know, we change jobs. And factories close and we don't make the wages that our parents did. And so this is this kind of moment where this where this transition that's not so good for us begins to happen. And I can remember very clearly the air traffic controller strike. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what happened so nineteen imagine so it's nineteen eighty one now, right? 
And, you know, by 1981, what a couple things have happened, right? First of all, you've had the rise of the conservative movement. So you have, you know, the conservatives are, are not in power for the most part between ni- the 1930s and 1980. Um, it's a liberal period in American history, really the only liberal period in American history. And, and this is what, again, created the middle class and all this other stuff. But, you know, conservatives, by which I mean mostly here we're talking about people who are angry about the civil rights movement and this sort of thing, plus businesses, right, and employers who were never happy with what had happened. They begin to organize and start influencing uh, government and begin to take over the Republican Party from inside. And so by 1980, they have finally done so, and they elect Ronald Reagan. They, Ronald Reagan gets the Republican nomination, and then he beats Jimmy Carter in the general election. And now you have a real conservative uh, in power, right? And uh, so with that, you know, it seems like, well, he's going to bust some unions. He's going to crack down on these unions. But you had the air traffic controllers, and this was a union of – like they were a union mostly of white men. They were not socially liberal in any real way, you know, so they were pretty, you know, they were pretty conservative in a lot of ways. They were mostly Vietnam veterans, um, and, but they're angry. They work for the government, and air traffic controllers, that's a hard, stressful job. I mean, lives are literally in your hands every second. You know, imagine, I mean, it's, 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 you know, the idea of, of that job to me is really mind-blowing, you know, that you'd have so much responsibility on you at all times. And the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, they weren't really funding it properly. They weren't hiring enough controllers. And so because of that, these guys are so overworked and they're so stressed out. And so they, they become very militant in their union uh, that they want to, you know, that, that they want better conditions for themselves. And so they're government workers. And in the 1970s, government workers started joining unions in big numbers for the first time. And they start going on strike, really beginning in 1970 with the postal workers go on strike. And they shut down the American mail for a few days, and, and they went. And But the problem – here's the thing about that. Technically, if you're a federal worker, striking is illegal. But all these workers were going on strike in the 1970s who were government workers, and they weren't getting fired. And that included the, the air traffic controllers, right? So they, they were involved in a number of these actions too. And so they hated Jimmy Carter because Jimmy Carter would not negotiate with them. They hated him. So they are one of the only unions who in 1980 endorsed Ronald Reagan for president. They thought Reagan's going to be on our side. They had spoken to Reagan. Reagan had given them some level of support, at least verbally. And so they think, okay, you know, Reagan's going to deal with us evenly and fairly, and we're going to get what we want, and this is going to be great for us. So they go on strike in 1981. But instead, Reagan destroys them. Seeing this as a moment challenging his presidency, Reagan fires them all. He gives them an ultimatum, says, you have to go back to work, or I'm going to fire all of you. And, you know, about you know, 80 to 90 percent of them think it's a bluff, and so they don't go back to work. And so he fires all of them, which is, is incredible, actually, that, that you didn't have a bunch of airplane crashes because they have now inexperienced people replacing them, uh, you know, guiding planes through the air. Um, but but they really you – know, somehow this happens without uh, any major crashes. And, uh, and so these – Air traffic controllers, they're destroyed. They're banned from working in the federal, for the federal government ever again. Uh, some of them end up drinking and in depression. Some move to Australia, places like that, to become controllers. Um, but it's, it's devastating. And, in, uh, and what ends up happening is this becomes a new movement in America, a moment where for private employers, they realize that the, the new government of America, they will be okay 
with busting unions. They will be okay if we get rid of our unions. And so that begins to happen. 1983, the, uh, this company called Phelps Dodge, which is the largest mining company in the world, they have this huge mine in Arizona. They close the mine. They destroy the United Steelworkers in their mine. They get rid of it. They reopen without unions. And then, and then the race is on. So this, this moment, 1981, this disastrous strike by the air traffic controllers, this is the moment where we start seeing the condition we see ourselves in today, which is a workers' movement with little power, with unions destroyed, with, with uh, the reemergence of the government and business working together to crush unions which is what we are increasingly seeing today, such as the Supreme Court decision uh, last year, um, Janus versus AFSCME, which undermined these public sector unions' ability to operate effectively uh, in the United States. So we're kind of moving again back to the conditions we saw 100 years ago. And, and the air traffic control strike is the moment where that really turns on. And you're listening to the Conver- WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back and into the home stretch with Eric Loomis. Author of A History of America in Ten Strikes. My name's Peter Solomon. And finally, there's justice for janitors. Yeah, so, you know, we're thinking about what does the labor movement look like today? Like, what, what, who, who are the workers today? And, you know, this is why I close um, by talking about immigrants, because immigrants are in many ways the core of the American labor movement today. And, you know, once again, like 100 years ago, we are a very uh, – we have a lot of immigrants in this country, of course – a lot of people don't like that, just like they didn't like it 100 years ago. Uh, but we are a very diverse country today. And so I wanted to, to finish the book with a strike that was important um, because it sets the tone for what uh, American uh, work looks like today. You know, so service work is such a big part of what we do today. Um, you know, and, and, of course, I focus on janitors, but everything from fast food workers to, you know, I mean, the, you know your sports radio, right, to the people who, who work at the Eagles games. I mean, you know, this is – the service work is a big part of our economy. And so, you know, and so um, – and immigrants are a big part of that. Uh, and so the labor movement over its history has been pretty anti-immigrant. Um, you know, I mentioned early in the show the Chinese Exclusion Act, but, but the labor movement usually thought that foreign-born workers were a competition against American-born workers and that this was wrong and so immigration should stop. But, you know, that, that was uh, not a very, I think, very effective way to, uh, to organize. And in, in, by the 1980s, the labor movement begins to change from being anti-immigrant to today. It's very pro-immigrant. It's a huge ally of immigrants. So that's a big change. And the Justice for Janitor strike in the 1990s uh, is a big part of it. That uh, that uh, uh, you know that you, what you have is a, you know in a new economy, the economy we have today, right, where everything's outsourced and subcontracted and everything else that, uh, you know, all of these big office buildings had, had contracted out their janitor services. And so you have these janitors, you know, these are, you know, housekeepers, people like this, people working at night, you know, the people we don't see when we go to work in the office building, right? But we need it. I mean, if they didn't come, then our trash isn't, isn't emptied and the bathrooms aren't cleaned and it's not a place we want to work. But so the conditions for these janitors, they had just collapsed. They were terrible. And the, you know, the wages had declined by about 50%, and they were worked really hard and forced to clean more rooms for less money. And so you have a, a union that has developed by this time called the Service Employees International Union. And, and that's today is one of the biggest unions in America, SEIU. 
And so they begin to say, you know what, we need to do a really smart campaign to organize these offices. So they get all of these immigrants to join the union. And a lot of these immigrants had been refugees to the United States in the 1980s from El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. So these were people who had fled political violence. So they're not scared because they've been through much worse. So they're willing to confront their, their employers. And, and so they start having these really big protests. And you know, it's in front of these office buildings. And of course, the people who work in the office buildings, they don't, they don't care. They, you know, they don't want, you know, they don't care if their you know, janitors have a union contract. They just want the, the trash taken out. And so this puts a ton of pressure on the building owners to fix the problem. And so they do. Uh, because of these incredible actions that eventually get uh, national attention when the, L, when the Los Angeles police at one point starts beating these strikers, you know, something reminiscent of 100 years ago, that uh, it forces the, uh, the, the building owners to cave, the janitors win better contracts, SEIU and the service workers union expands across the country. And so now the union movement becomes pro-immigrant. It organizes a lot of the new low-wage workers. And so this moment, this, this Justice for Janitors moment, uh, shows the hope that we can have. Yes, you know, the air traffic controllers show how things have gotten bad and things have you know, significantly become worse for the American working class and for the American middle class, for that matter. But the Justice for Janitors show that there's hope in the future, that, the, that workers and their need – and just demands for a more just world, those aren't going to go, that's not going to go away no matter what happens to unions. That people will always be working for what they think is right. And so that, that's, that's a kind of hopeful message for the future that as we move forward, that uh, a diverse labor movement in a diverse America will come together and continue to demand for better lives for American workers. So that's, that's a sort of a hopeful moment I, that I end the book on. Okay. Your book documents the role the Supreme Court played in a lot of these strikes. Sometimes yeah. good, not some, sometimes not so good. That's with, right. So this, is, oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Okay. Um, with the recent swearing in of Justice Kavanaugh, it's back in the American conscious like never before. What do you think is going to happen now if there's a strike five years from now? There's a big strike. What do you think is going to happen with the Supreme Court? Yeah, so that's pretty clear. I mean, it, so in a lot of issues, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is um, um, more conservative than Justice Kennedy was, right? And so on issues like uh, legal access to abortion, that's almost certainly going to change. I mean, Roe versus Wade is very likely to be overturned uh, in the next few years. And, and for many, many Americans, myself included, that's a terrible thing. Uh, but in terms of strikes, it actually isn't going to make much difference. Justice Kennedy was very, very, very conservative on labor unions. He did not like labor unions, and he consistently ruled against them. Uh, and so there's probably not going to be any real significant difference on this point. Um, you know, so in 20, again, so just this, just this past spring, in Justice Kennedy's last term, the Supreme Court issues the Janice v. Afsme decision, that, uh, that basically uh, uh, undermines the ability of public sector unions, government unions, to operate effectively, uh, allowing, uh, effectively allowing people to opt out of paying into unions. That you don't have to be a member of a union to be represented by a union, right? So nobody makes you be a member of a union. But what was happening, because you as a worker there 
you you get the same wages, benefits, hours that all the union workers get, right? You benefit from what the union members do. There was a law, a Supreme Court decision from the 70s that was a unanimous Supreme Court decision in 1978 called the, uh, the Abood case that said that you, because you benefited, you paid a percentage of what the union member would pay to the union so that it can represent you properly. In 2018, in a five to four majority of five conservatives on the court overturned this, basically creating a new a, a new speech category that only applies to labor unions. It doesn't apply to other kinds of organization that limits the ability of those unions to operate, telling those non-union workers you don't have to pay anything into the union, but you're still represented by the union and you still get everything that the union gets. So this was an open attack on, on unions, and Justice Kennedy was, was completely fine with that. He was very supportive of that. Um, but I think the broader question here of the, uh, of the uh, Supreme Court is really, really critical. Because in the end, you know, our laws are arbitrated by the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court says something is unconstitutional, then it is unconstitutional, at least until the Supreme Court changes its mind. And, uh, you know, and, and this is why that, you know, the Republicans have been so uh, focused on the Supreme Court for a very, very long time, more so than Democrats, which is a big part of the reason why uh, they have been able to succeed in moving the nation significantly more conservative over the last 30 years. And so they, uh, and so you know, today we are in a position like a century ago, where the Supreme Court has begun to simply make rulings that undermine unions because the conservatives on the Supreme Court don't like unions. The reason that unions were able to succeed in the 1930s is that a new, more liberal Supreme Court came on, and they they voted for unions. And so this, this role of the court is absolutely critical moving forward, uh, and uh, you know, it's, this is going to make it very, very hard for unions uh, to operate, but this was already the case under, under Justice Kennedy. Why did you write the book? Yeah, I wrote the book because we're in a moment uh, where there's a lot of people who are angry about what the United States has become. Um, you have a new era of protest. Uh, you know, it's a very divided era, of course, as anybody knows, no matter which side you're on, you know that the nation is very, very divided. And I think that as we move forward to try to create a more just America, there's a lot of lessons we can learn. Uh, the, we can't really create a better America if we don't understand the past. And so I wanted to write a book that helped people understand this past, to, to take our history of strikes and, you know, all of this work that scholars have done and, and condense it and put it into a narrative that any, anybody who's 14 years old could understand, right? And, you know, it's written for an audience that's a general audience. You could pick this up. There's, you know, not, you know, a lot of, you know, jargony words or, you know, convoluted language. It's written, I wrote it as clearly as possible for everyday people to pick this up and read it and understand if you're trying to make change in America over, over our history and in our government, what works and what doesn't work, right? What do you need to do to create change in America? So I, I try to help people figure that out. And looking at this through the through the lens of labor struggles, right, through the lens of economic justice, which is something that we really need today and that many people are fighting for, we have to understand what has worked in the past if we want a smarter movement to make the demands that we need in the present 
if, if we're going to see those demands succeed. So that was, that was the real reason to write the book. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest this morning, Eric Loomis, his new book, The History of America in Ten Strikes. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for, stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Nothing left to say, but I think it says it on the National Archives. The past is prologue. What does our prologue say about the future? Bye.